to write about musicians that have come before us and uh, have been in very similar situations. It all comes down to the ability to articulate what that means. Like, so, I mean, you know, like some of the writers I, I most admire, like Peter Gronick, for example, is not a, he's more of a traditional biographer and a music fan and, and, and uh, but I don't think he's a musician at all. So, uh, but he's a masterful storyteller and researcher and a writer. So I, I think, um, I think for me, it's like, well, here I, I, I've been in a studio, even back in the old days when they were really studios, and not that they've changed drastically, but you know, the you know, back back when that. Well, they have and they have it right. I mean, there there are still those traditional studios, but obviously there are different yeah, models. So now. whatever the thing might be, cutting tape, whatever it is, uh, but it's more about the dynamics and arrangements and uh, and listening deeply to things, um, but also like what is what does being a, in a band mean? What does it mean to be an artist, what does it mean to be like a songwriter, uh, a band leader navigating that kind of stuff? So I, I think without a doubt that brings – I bring some – some. Uh, I wasn't going to say authority, but let's say – let's just say experience. I don't know about authority, but experience there. Yeah. I would say authority. I think, I think authority is right. I, you know, I, I like to tell myself that I write professionally and that in some of the things that I write that, that may be – Sometimes there's value in not being an expert and, and really kind of approaching it from the outside and, and sort of learning about a thing. Beginner's mind. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit Alan Watts, a little bit Zen and, and, and learning about it, you know, as you're writing about it gives an on-ramp to the reader, um, something that you have to be mindful of. Yeah. I was just going to say there's a downfall to it. It's a downside as well, which is like not getting, not assuming everybody knows what the hell you're talking about. So, uh, you know, on my previous Stones book, I remember r r uh, having a back and forth with my editor about, she's like, you know, you're, you're geeking out a little bit too much about the gear or whatever it might be. And I said, yeah, that's a good point. But I know that uh, certain people want to hear about certain things and how the gear affects things. And um, what I try certainly not to do is get too bogged down in like music theory, because even as a musician of 30, 40 years, whatever I've been playing, my whole life, actually, I've been playing music. And I used to read music when I was a kid, but uh, I get really turned off when people start to use musical theory terms, and I have to remember, whoa, what does that mean, you know? I mean, a glissando is one thing, but if you're talking about, like, a flatted fifth or something, it gets a little too inside baseball and technical. It's minutia, and, and again, I think it's something that any expert in a given field has to be mindful at the end of the day. I mean, this is a general audience book. Exactly. Yeah. It's a book for people who like music, but it's not necessarily a book for musicians. No, but at the same time, uh, I do want to make a, make musicians really appreciate it because sometimes things are just written so dumbed down, uh, for lack of a better term. That's probably not the most the best term for it, but like just bringing it down to basic layman's terms or or writing things about musicians without writing about the music enough. Um, so I I also want this to appeal to musicians, and I know it is, especially the musicians that are in the book. To really know that they are appreciated and what they did from a music, because that's what it's about. It's like what makes this guy distinctive is not just his his enigma, enigmatic personality, his mystery, and his and his life, but it's the fact that he was a musician. I mean, that's his. That was his thing. It was his. It was ninety something percent of his identity. I bet. So, yeah, 
It's a little bit of a balance, for sure. That's an interesting point and, and something I haven't considered. I mean, obviously, Leon will not, unfortunately, be reading this book, but there's a decent chance that, that the of the, what, hundreds, I guess, of people you spoke to about it, that, that at least a few of them are going to pick it up and, and read it at some point. Oh, m- many of them have. I mean, I've sent them, I sent it to many of them, and uh, some of them had picked it up before I, I could send it to them. Uh, and I haven't had any blowback yet. <laughs> uh, I'm always sort of flinching whenever I send anything out in the world. But yeah, I've, I've, it means the most to me that the people I, first generally, the people that I review, that I interviewed for the book, are, you know, feel I got him right. Particularly that the musicians who collaborated with him feel I got it right. And then there's this other audience of musicians generally and, and people that just want to read about a good uh, hero of theirs. I want to appeal to all those people, of course, but there's sort of layers of like, ah, oh, I'm glad that the guy, you know, Jack Wessel is bass player for the last half of his life. I, I'm glad it really, that he feels like I got it right. I'm glad Claudia Lanier called me this weekend and told me I got it right. That, those kinds of people. What does it mean to get him right? Well, I think uh, speaking to 130-ish, 140 people I talked to, it kind of gives you, you know, you've got to listen to everybody's stories and you get this Rashomon effect, right? So, so, so that you can get like four or five people in the same incident telling you different versions of that thing. And I, I mean, I can't remember 10 years ago, never mind 40 years ago, if I was, <laughs> if I was around for, for that long and an adult. Um, so I, I, it's amazing that the people remember that what they do, but you start to remember things in your own sort of cemented version of reality, which may have been enhanced or changed over the year, and then it starts to solidify. Um, so, but I'm real more, I'm, I'm sort of more, uh, struck by how many people sort of tell the same story in a similar way so that you get a, a pretty good picture of reality. Anything that seemed questionable to me, I either questioned and verified or I questioned and left out, um, especially if it was something controversial. But yeah, I think getting somebody right is like, I, who knows? I never met Leon. I don't know what he was like as a person aside from all these other voices painted a picture. And when there's a consistent picture, you're, you know, give or take a margin of error, you feel like you kind of got him right. There's this idea called triangulation, you know, and it's something that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Th- that we use a lot in technology and, and effectively it's, you know, if you get enough points around to give an object, you're, 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 you're able to identify it or, or identify where it is. And, and that's, that's sort of what you have to do, right? Is you have to figure out that that middle point. Correct. Um, yeah, yeah. And without without watering it down, like you don't want to throw out some of the more jagged edges just because you don't have. Nec- you know, it depends on what we're talking about, I suppose. But yeah, that's that's for sure. The more people that are in the room to tell a very similar story, that's that's the story. And there may be, and you may, you know, for me, I I may quote somebody saying, "Well, and this." Plus this, uh, and it may be sort of a little bit of gravy, but they're saying it. I don't know if you know how true or not true something might be there, but I think you got over you know five hundred plus pages. You get a, a an overall pretty good view of the guy. I certainly probably I can't imagine I didn't get a couple things wrong, but I haven't heard many things yet, honestly. But it's it's only been a couple weeks. <laughs> Any really well known musical figure, him especially. Um, becomes mythical over time. And, and it's your job to sort of to peel back those myths. That's interesting. I just had this conversation with somebody else 
who's somewhat involved in Leon's legacy. And there is a question of like, well, must you peel back myths or do you actually lean into the myths, you know, uh, in storytelling? And for example, in that conversation that I had just had, it's like I, I, I brought up Nick Tosh's book of um, about Jerry Lee Lewis, which I love, uh, Hellfire. But how much of it's true and how much of it's just, I mean, it's written like a novel. And I think a bit of it's, I mean, you don't need to make Jerry Lee Lewis's life any in any way fantastical, in fa- fantastical because it was so fantastic as it was. The truth of it, like, you don't need to enhance it. But, um, you know, it's like, which choices do you leave out? Which boring parts do you leave out to make it a really exciting book? And Leon's uh, not like Jerry Lee Lewis that way, but he's like Jerry Lee Lewis in as much as he could walk into a room and Mick Jagger would feel that this guy is like a rock star, charismatic figure that filled with mystery. And and I know that for a fact. And uh, so do I, bore, do I make somebody more boring by making them more human? <laughs> I don't think so. I think, I, 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 th- I think you get this picture of this guy who is maybe that much more of a of a of a of a great mythical figure because he was also human like you talk about you know in Greek mythology the the human aspects of those gods for example you know like that's what makes them identifiable very similar human aspects as as the kinds that Jerry Lee Lewis had at the end of the day <laughs> when you think about it I, I don't have the Jerry Lee Lewis book but I have his um I have a uh, Nick Tosh's Dino book. Mm. Uh, his, his Dean Martin book, and and I and I think it's similar in that. And the difference, I I think I've never talked to him, but the impression that I get from him and his writing is that there's a there's an extent to which he considers himself a novelist, right? Well, kind of a well, it's it's like um, it's literature. Yeah, it's it's uh, creative nonfiction. It's literature. Yeah, and I aspire to that. Um, uh, not not in. I mean, if I I guess if I could write more novelistically like that i i might but with this book in particular i just felt like um this is the way it's unfolding and i kind of went with the flow on it i didn't want to force some sort of uh approach onto it but tasha's yeah i read both of those books and i think dino it paints more of uh hellfire is more of a quick sort of burst of like just non-stop energy Whereas Dino is more that languid because uh, that fits his personality. And I, think, I don't know, forgot, forgot the word they kept using. Natasha uses it's just a certain Italian word about this sort of louche, louche, uh, figure. You know, anyway. Yeah. It's, these are choices you make, I suppose, when you're writing. Yeah. It's, it's what the kids call vibing. <laughs> okay. You're vibing. You're, 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 you're capturing, you're capturing the feel of a character and, and at a certain point, perhaps. The manisha doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and part of it's like how much dial. I'm sorry, how much um, quote? You know, how much quoting do you use from the sources as opposed to paraphrasing? And and with this book, I found myself just, you know, especially when it came to something controversial. Of course, it just takes the it takes the weight off me to and and the burden off me to just say, uh, well, this is you know so and so saying this. And but uh, the voices that I, I that I interviewed, almost all of them were so compelling that I wanted their 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 manner of speech and they're not just their viewpoint and the more you do that the more the less it becomes a, a novel and, and you know I, I wanted it to i didn't want it to get to be a, an oral history but there's that spectrum of like you know pure narrative to oral history and i, I hopefully i'm i'm i'm, I'm right in that strike that right balance there as well 
Do you get the sense from him, or, or I suppose the people that you talk to, that he played a role in propagating those myths? Yeah, my my sense is that he was unaware of his innate charisma early on. You know, more than one person said he was a rock star before he was a rock star, and I would I, I also take that to mean that he didn't know he was a rock star before he was actually a rock star. And in fact, um, a couple of people talk about like as he Chris O'Dell, for example, his girlfriend who came back from London with him as he's after he's making that debut record. Uh, he records that, puts it mostly in the can and comes back to L.A. with her, taking her from Apple Records. And she talks about like his awakening to how 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 he saw himself because it was right after the Mad Dogs to how he how he saw himself appealing to particularly women. But like earlier on, like he would come into a studio as a session guy and he wouldn't say, uh, wouldn't say a word. He would just do his job, but he would, he had such a mastery as a musical, uh, as a musician and particularly with his sense of time, hence the, you know, his nickname, Master of Space and Time. But he could really kind of, as Herb Alpert said, he wouldn't know what he's doing right away. He wouldn't have a part in mind. And then all of a sudden the whole band would be following him. So, that all kind of paints this picture of this guy that was such a master and 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 you know the it's sort of like the being there phenomenon it's like the less you say or the more the more uh obscure you are in saying it the more people ascribe certain meaning to it and i think he, that with his appearance with his his limp it all sort of made up for this this very enigmatic guy with a very calm quiet charisma but who became aware of it and then then had to overcome his shyness and insecurity and all that stuff. And he puts on this gigantic rock star persona, which was like a super kind of Nova thing that he that he it was it was a real persona that he adopted. And that 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 was yet another layer of charisma. That was more like the televangelist persona. He certainly dressed the part, you know, he, he almost had a costume. Then that goes along with the the myth making at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, Rita Coolidge told me and she said it in her book as well that, you know, she'd when she saw Leon coming into the A&M parking lot for uh, the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, he's got the top hat, he's got see, these certain clothes that he's chosen, sort of super, super hippie clothes, basically, from, you know, it's 1970, and he's strutting. And she said, I, he was never a strutter. He was always, you know, he could either be Mr. Personality or, or, or he wouldn't get out of bed for three weeks. So it was this sort of bipolar personality that she describes. But, <clears throat> you know, she said, you know, putting on that top hat, it was always, <laughs> sort of like the, Frosty the Snowman, he puts on this top hat or this, you know, he's like Superman, he puts on a cape and he's, he becomes that, that persona. You just referenced, and, and in other interviews, I, I've heard you reference the Mad Dogs and Englishmen, you know, the, the, the Joe Cocker live album. Why was that such a, if not turning point, it really seems to be the, the album or the time period that really, I think, solidified your your feelings about him or your appreciation of him as a musician? Well, I mean, for a long time, that was my only real impression of him. I was six when uh, Tightrope came out, came out uh, and I used to, I was, you know, six years old, I, I was just in love with AM radio and I probably had my own little transistor radio at that point already. And that was a big hit when I was six or so. And that was it. Uh, but when I was 12, you know, and I grew up with the Carpenters in my house. My mom was a big Carpenters fan. So I knew Superstar. I knew a song for you, This Masquerade. I know all that stuff. 76, George Benson comes out with uh, his version of This Masquerade. But I don't know if I had drawn the line between all those things and Leon. But then I got 
uh, Mad Dog's English Oil, specifically a friend of mine had it. And just there are certain times when you're in your development where certain records just come to you when they're supposed to. And Exile on Main Street was like that for me. And but I, there was some there was something about back then. I'm talking about the 70s and early 80s where you know I would get lost in these double albums. I was just such a music fan that the more of it, the better. So opening up Mad Dogs and Englishmen, seeing that artwork, seeing these figures, these people living together, the repertoire that kind of solidified that idea, this cosmic sort of hippie consciousness, these rock stars all hanging out together, touring together, this big, gigantic family band, there's dogs, there's kids. That just was like such a magical thing to me. Never mind the fact that the music was everything I loved about rock and roll, which I don't think I necessarily would have been our able to articulate as a 12 or 13 year old i know i wouldn't have been but it was really that uh soul and r&b and gospel shit that really uh appealed to me so even within the stones like i love early stones i love later stones but man that mid 70s i'm sorry early 70s let's say 68 to 72 that is just that is just gold to me and so much of that was actually literally influenced by leon russell so I mean, you know, a lot of this is going back in time. Like, I, I didn't grow up, like, I, I was the oldest of five. My parents were not particularly hip at all. So we didn't have Leon Russell records at the house. But, you know, I had, I had Mad Dogs and Englishmen. It was, it was just a constant in my life. And then, um, but just like going back as a musician and going, oh, now I'm drawing this line to this person, to this. Talk to Bobby Keys for the Stones book. He's talking about Leon Russell. And all that stuff sort of like, oh, what a, what a, what an appealing, appealing figure. This is where we get into kind of our old man talk, but it, the, the discovery is really interesting and it, and it was a really exciting element. Uh, still exists to a certain extent, but, but pre internet of being a detective, getting really into music and starting to connect the dots is very exciting. Yeah. And, Taking that further, when the internet first did start to come around and allmusic.com, for example, and those kinds of things came around, I, I loved being able to go into credits and click that credit and seeing what, el what else it opened. And I still, now as a biographer and writer of music, it's, it just makes my life, so I can't imagine doing a project like this without that sort of resource, you know? But yeah, there was something magical about just opening up, uh, I know it's cliche, but it's like to, to sit there staring at an album cover for an hour while you listen to the music front to back on headphones <laughs> you know it was an immersive experience and to yeah leon russell i saw that name on let it bleed okay oh wait a minute leon russell wrote this song with that my mom's listening to <laughs> oh this donny hathaway song is so that stuff that that like those yeah those eureka moments are are great it's what makes being a music fan so fun if i had to draw a line between him as a performer and exile you know versus a lot of the people who covered his songs i mean you know all, all love in the world for karen carpenter and the carpenters but they were very polished a lot of those records and and he he was raw underneath it all and and that to me obviously the early stone stuff was raw out of necessity but but exile was was such a deliberately raw record yeah, but more importantly, it it really upped the gospel game uh, for those guys. They they had been um, they had always you know they had been raw almost all the way through. They had they had really never even when they were doing psychedelia, psychedelia they were they were raw. But um, you know they really kind of returned to their roots in a big way on on Beggar's Banquet in '68. But then they come to L.A. and it, and it really is Leon, not just his little piano part, which is significant on Live with Me. 
but he brought in Bobby Keys. He brought in Mary Clayton. Uh, you know, this is sort of not a, some of this stuff is not really told because he was good. They were going to bring in Bonnie Bramlett. These are all people from Leon Stable. He had already been doing, uh, session work in LA for like seven years at that point, which is, you know, in a young man's life, that's everything. And it, it really set the stones. They were, I think the stones were already on that. That trajectory, without a doubt. I mean, you listen to Nicky Hopkins, and for an English guy, he can really back then, even before Leon, he could play gospel pretty, pretty effectively and pretty authentically. But I think they looked at Leon as like the real deal, which he was. Um, but Leon didn't grow up in the church any more than, 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 uh, than Nicky Hopkins did. You know, he grew up in a, in a Methodist church, but he had these ears and he had the American vernacular down and he had the experience of working with a lot of these people, including Aretha. So, uh, but the Stones were sort of looking to capture, I think, some of that authenticity. I mean, it was kind of going early on, back when they started first going to chess, you know, and then RCA. And so they really wanted American. They really wanted to sound like real, you know, American roots guys. So, yeah. And, uh, but it was really from, from Let It Bleed to Sticky Fingers to, 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 to Exile. It, you can just see this increasing, gospel specific thing not just r&b not just soul not just you know it's like wow let's really lean into this gospel piano and billy preston organ and these singers that are really that grew up in the church that kind of stuff i'm glad you bring up mary clayton she was on the show like last year or the year before oh, wow. and you know she she invariably tells the 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 give me shelter story you know which where and she's basically Gets a call in the middle of the night. Her husband convinces her to, to go to the studio. She's like seven months pregnant. She records, she, you know, she's singing rape and murder over and over again, doesn't know what to make of it. And then at a certain point, and it's still very clear on the record, her, her voice cracks. And she, she says, Oh, my, you know, my voice cracked. Let's, let's do it again. You know, there was a mistake on there. And, and, and it was kept on record. And, that, and that's a very deliberate decision. And I, I think that that speaks to that that attempt to really capture authenticity. Yeah, and the rawness, as you say. I mean, that's that is one of the great moments of emotion on, on record. And I, you know, I wrote about it in depth. And I, I, I talk about I talked to her for the Rocks Off book, the Stones book, in thirteen. And I said, it sounds like you felt it crack a little bit before that, and and when it came back around, you actually lean into it. And I, she she affirmed that, but I don't know if she's just sort of going along to. To sort of like make, you know, make me, you know, as it kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation, is she just leaning into the mythology of it all? But uh, to me as a singer, okay, so now we're giving, a, giving an example of like where musicianship comes in and experience. Like, uh, and I, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just a, bringing mu- a musician's background and a studio background, it's like you hear something like that, as you say, it kind of sounds like almost a mistake, but I could feel her feeling her vulnerability and like pushing it even harder because if if your voice breaks like that your your inclination is to either stop and and clear your throat and say hold on hold on let me let me, let me or lean into it even more and go wow I'm going to make this next one crack even more and make it hit you in the gut like, you know and and that's what it felt like to me at least that's what I want to believe you know you allude to that that stones book which um I think is effectively a, a- an attempt to draw sort of a broader narrative through the stories of these songs to use the songs as a kind of a jumping off point to tell the story of the stones. And then the 33 and a third book, obviously very different. That's, that's hyper-focused in a way that a lot of these sort of broader biographies 
aren't the the approach to this by the nature of the kind of book that you wanted to write had to be dramatically different. I think than both of those. Yeah. I mean, this is a biography, you know? So yeah, the first stones book is just very heavy on the point of view uh, about exile on main street. Uh, I did some interviewing. I, I did a lot of research, but it, a lot of it was just kind of based on existing source material and my opinions on stuff and why, and a, an appreciation, really an appreciation. The second stones book was, was, kind of the same thing, but now taking it over their whole career, I did a little bit more in the way of interviewing, but I'm, I, you know, I'm still not necessarily a journalist or a biographer at that point. I'm, just, I'm using the existing biography as far as I know it. But then this one was just straight up biography and really very little source material existed except for, you know, um, periodicals and online stuff. I mean, there was no, there were no real books. I mean, you know, no real books about them, you know? Um, there's there's one actual book that uh, a guy put out that kind of came out uh, around the same time of, that I was winding down my manuscript. In fact, I think I was on the second draft, and he just self published it, and it's called The Superstar and a Masquerade. It's it kind of covers Leon and JJ Kale. His name is William Sargent. It was a self published, a real big project. It took him like 25 years to, but it's more of a compendium and an encyclopedia of things. He calls it a biopedia. So it's not a real book so much as a great reference thing, but he really did his research. Um, so I don't want to throw him under the bus. I mean, he, it, it was helpful to me to kind of go back and go, oh, yeah, so we have the same recording dates here. He's got this. Oh, he had this one. I don't have that one. I wanted to confirm that kind of thing. You obviously talked to some really huge people for this book. Um, is it? Um, how long of a process was was it beginning to end? You know, it's like during the pandemic, so all, I lost sense of all time. Uh, but it, it started... Uh, spring of 19, I talked to Jan, Leon's widow, and then it went from there. So it was really 20, it was basically really a good solid two years, if not a little bit more. You know, in a certain sense, this was kind of a perfect pandemic project. PPP. <laughs> it prohibited your movements, and I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of things that, you know, that maybe you would have done that you weren't able to do, but all of a sudden, we've, we've all got a ton of free time on our hands. Yeah, I mean, it was it was important for me, obviously, to have some free time. Um, I, I didn't have as much free time as I had anticipated because of my day job, actually, which is selling real estate, actually turned into this crazy busy time. But um, I did have, you know, all social time was gone pretty much. And um, I was home with the family like everybody else. And But it was more importantly, the pandemic allowed, uh, so you mentioned, you know, a lot of these names, like, or the people that I interviewed, uh, I think a lot of them were w- would have been predisposed to talk about Leon and, and and wanted to talk about Leon, but if they were out on the road or if they were in a studio, it would have been much more logistically challenged. But um, the fact that everybody's home and sort of used to being on Zoom calls and things like that, it made it, it greased the wheels pretty easily. I've been doing the show for a while, and it used to be very important for me to do all of these in person. I've got like a little setup. I would either go to somebody, have them come to me, I felt like there was, um, you know, this, this is why I use video. Obviously, it's just kind of an approximation. But, but there's, there's something that you get actually being in front of somebody, you know, them sitting across a table, table from you, you know, sharing a space, being able to read body language. Were you, were you concerned about that when you started? Yeah, I mean, I definitely missed out on it. And in fact, I mean, I, I would say that I, if, I, in, in, if my memory serves, there are actually, I would say, less than even half of of the calls were, were even zoom video calls. A lot of them were just straight up phone calls. 
I mean, there's pluses and minuses. I, I'm not a real journalist. I, I'm not a, I shouldn't even say I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. I just sort of, this is what I, my first project of the, doing this kind of thing. Uh, never mind this many interviews. It became a real addiction to me. I'm not sure if you feel the same way. I mean, I, I became like, I, I bet you, I bet you do. Um, for me, it was like, I was really nervous those first few, especially back in the earlier books. But then I'm like, I'm going to be talking to Bruce Springsteen. I'm psyched to be talking to Bruce Springsteen. I can't wait. And then it's like, I wanted to talk to everybody. It, it wasn't just, I was excited to talk to everybody because I wanted to hear their stories. And I love to talk. I love to, I love to converse. I did have a few in-person interviews um, and that came at the end of the project. And I was able to finally get out to Tulsa and go into these archives, which were not digitized. So uh, thank goodness for that. At least the pandemic broke for that. I don't think I would, would have been able to honestly finish the book in, in the correct way if I had not had access to that kind of stuff. But a lot of it came like <laughs> I did all this work and I was writing and interviewing and researching all at once. It wasn't like i said, okay, a year of research and then a year of writing. It's not, it wasn't like that. It was like, I, in fact, I, there were some people that come later in his chronology in his life that I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be reaching out to you. Just know that I'll, I, I don't want you to know that I, – I, I don't want you to hear that I'm writing about you without me coming to you, but I, I need to know what I'm going to ask you by the time I get up there. So for me, it was a very linear process. But by the end of it, I was like, damn, I got to cram to get all this – I mean, I literally spent like five days in Tulsa just – Taking pictures on my cell phone of you know scanning documents and and being and and say I'll digest this stuff later and go through this later. I just needed to get it all captured so I could get home and write about it. The Springsteen one is funny. I mean, obviously, talk about towering mythical figures and somebody who I suspect, even again, having done a lot of these, that I would feel I'd feel nervous in the lead up to it. But the thing that you had that I don't have for this show is had an in you had a topic and there's a there's a sense in which that makes for a much easier interview because you're coming in knowing that that person agreed to do the interview because they want to talk about that thing yeah and my and my temptation uh that i have to watch is wanting to talk to them about other things you know like i mean certain people all right one of my great uh surprises and this is how great an interview eric clapton was and which, yeah, there, but you know, baggage is a word I would throw around with Clapton. Yeah, and his and mine. I mean, like I, I grew up as a guitar player in the seventies, like I, you know, like everybody else, going, okay, this guy. I mean, you know, you have to remember the context for even in the seventies, he was already he, you already remembered what that stuff meant in the sixties, and and anyway, long story short, I, you know, and he was going through his his COVID anti-lockdown thing and, and controversial statements. And, and he already had his baggage. Um, but, you know, I said, uh, so I called him up. I said, hey, um, hi, it's Bill Janowitz. is uh, you know, Eric Clapp. Hey, uh, it's Eric. I said, hey, Eric, how are you doing? He goes, well, I'd be all right if it wasn't for all this bloody lockdown thing. So he sort of said it immediately, but then he got it out of the way. And then we talked for like an hour. So my point is that we ended up just shooting the shit about guitars and blah, 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 and music. And, and he really opened up. And the other things that made him surprising was I think really he kept a diary because he has a really great memory and great insight. But yeah, guys like him, guys like uh, Cheech Marin told me side stories that would never make it in the book because they have nothing to do with Leon. But, you know, stuff like that is just like I, if you talk to 140 people, you got to you got to like, you know, some of them, many of them tell you all these great other stories and they, they ask you questions and then you get into a conversation. 
So my temptation was to not just be all uh, Chris Farley on some of these people and go, Bruce Springsteen, you did Darkness on the Edge of Town, right? Awesome. Uh, the Cheech Marin thing doesn't surprise me at all, knowing what I know about him, that he was going off on, you know, on, on a lot of tangents. The Clapton one, the Clapton thing is funny because, and, and I completely understand this, and you know, I, I, I don't know a lot about your politics. I, I suspect you probably don't agree with him on a lot of things, but you have to, you know, you, you have to humor the person at first and, and listen to them and, you know, and then find your way in. Is that what you're doing with me? <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, uh, vaccines and autism in the bottom half of the interview. <laughs> just humor me. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you just want to find common ground and... Uh, listen, I mean, you know, we all have to find common ground with, with some of these edgier uh, opinions. You know, I wasn't really very aware of it at the time, but I was going back and watching some of the live performances that you, that you archived online. I mean, that was... When, 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 when did that start? You know, when, when was it... I guess, when was it clear that, one, that you were not going on the road anytime soon, and, and two, that you did have this avenue... Well, we weren't going to go on the road anyway. I mean, the next thing for Buffalo Tom would have been to get into the studio, and we were kind of quite prepared to get that going. We had a lot of songs to, ready to go, so boo-hoo-hoo. I mean, everybody had their stuff. But, I mean, Buffalo Tom has not been a full-time concern for a long time, so no big deal there. But, yeah, I still play out around town personally, and Buffalo Tom still plays around town uh, and, and various, you know, sort of short jaunts. So, I mean, you know, I... I played my last show before the pandemic that February. So the next month we were all shut, shut down. And um, I don't know how far into it, but I think pretty soon into it, I figured um, it wasn't just me. Obviously, other people started live streaming, and some people were some people were had already kind of mastered it or gotten. Uh, so for me, a lot of it was also this the challenge of finding out how to do this kind of stuff. You know, like make it sound as good as possible and. Uh, so it was really, you know, people, it's really nice. Like I, I, I played, I've played, I played three shows through the fall and winter this year, three or four shows. And everybody comes up to me, uh, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but so many people come up to me and tell me what that meant to them. And, um, I was just so thankful that anybody was paying any attention whatsoever while they're thanking me. For me, it was like, Hey, you're all locked down. What else are you going to do? You got a, I got a captive audience. <laughs> You know, we're performers, so we perform. Um, but they really, it really kept me sane because, number one, I'm playing and people are paying attention. But also, there's this, I would go back and read the comments and because the, it was a live chat going on or whatever. And that meant a lot to me to see all these people around the world, literally around the world, tuning in at a certain time and feeling this sense of community, which is what, you know, it's sort of the best of the internet. There's so many horrible things about it, but... That was sort of the uh, utopian ideal back, I think, when people started to come up with this technology. Yeah, I, I like that you use the phrase playing around town in reference to, I guess, the, the, the state that Buffalo Tom is in currently, because it sounds like it's, it's low pressure, and low pressure seems like a nice place to be in for a band. Yeah, well, when we were, you know, it's funny, I, I only, we watched the, I, that whole sort of Woodstock 99 thing came out recently. The, there was like two documentaries. I could only, I could only watch one and that was a lot to get through. But it, that was like, oh yeah, that was 99. That was the year my daughter was born. That was the year Buffalo Tom got off the road. That was like, cause everything was, 
you know, we started in 86 to just kind of give you some context, right? And we got on the road by 88, 89. And so we rode that wave of like, our band could be your life. There was really very little chance of making it big. You just wanted to kind of see if you could put out another record and extend your adolescence another year or two. And then Nirvana happened, right? And it was sort of just like that. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, everything. Has, oh, and then they're signing every band that, you know, wears a flannel shirt <laughs> and uh, plays a guitar loud. And so we benefited from that to a great extent. But we rode that. It didn't sort of whatever. It didn't come. We didn't become as big as Pearl Jam or Nirvana. So it's like it was quite clear that we could kind of keep doing it at this like sort of low level, not low, low level, but, um, you know, a, a reasonable level. But we would have to stay on the road. And Tom, our drummer, had already had two kids. I had my first. And Chris would have two uh, as well afterwards. So we were like we were always probably level headed to a fault. And I think we could all see the writing on the wall and say, well, we're either going to kill each other if we do this and try to make a living at this continuing or so let's just take a break and then we'll we'll check in with each other and the three of us are just i'm i'm the most amped up of the two of, of the other two of the three of us and so i'm the one that's sort of like usually going okay what are we doing and you know everybody's like, oh, you know, i mean i don't mean to i mean they're they're all we're all interested in doing this and sometimes one one guy will say let's go into the studio and let's do this so but back then it was like, well, I, I think if you would ask any of us, we thought maybe we were breaking up, but we weren't really, <laughs> we weren't really passionate enough about, <laughs> about breaking up. It was like, well, just, we'll just go away for a while. Maybe we should have broken up and maybe the reunion would have been as big as pavement. Who knows? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just nice to reconvene and, but yeah, to make a living doing other things without having to put it all on music definitely takes the pressure off. I spoke to Carl Newman last week from the New Pornographers and, you know, and, and they've, they've been through a few members here and there. It's been fairly consistent, but he effectively said to me, um, no matter what people tell you when somebody leaves a band, it's, it's not a hundred percent amicable. <laughs> and, and, mm. and, it, and this is something that I, you know, that I've heard from a lot of bands and, and I understand it. Right. I mean, I've always said the best way to test the strength of relationship is to move in with somebody. Um, being on the road in a van is a hundred times that. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and this is, again, this is where the insight comes in from my experience to looking at, uh, let's say this, you know, this book, but let's, let's talk about specifically about Mad Dogs and Englishmen and like Joe Cocker and the, the struggle between Leon and Joe Cocker, which wasn't really a struggle because there was no outward struggle. It was all sort of passive aggressive, which is like we majored in passive aggressivity in Buffalo Tom, you know, there was no, there was never a moment where somebody was threatening to punch out the other guy. It was really like, okay. Uh, I haven't talked to that guy in three weeks, you know, and I see him at soundcheck or whatever it is. And, you know, that is like the, the experience of that is like, you have to say, okay, how old were we? We were in our twenties. We got out of college. We already had been friends in college, but we weren't like the best friends. We were just all, we became sort of really great friends and now we're family. But back then it was like, that we became really good friends as we were doing it. But like, we just happened to be in the same friend group. But then you're in this band and you're in your 20s and you're just trying to figure out this stuff. And it's a completely unnatural sort of like, you know, like the real world. It's like, let's put a bunch of people in a house and see what happens. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not the real world. It's being in a van and going, playing one-nighters in shitty clubs 
and having great moments and then the most depressing moments you could have ever imagined all sort of within a 12-hour span. <laughs> really kind of – you have to figure things out pretty fast and you don't always do it uh, – Elegant. You know, I implicitly understand what the great moments were, but what's, uh, what were the really shitty, shitty moments? What were kind of the, um, I guess the ebbs in touring for you? Well, I mean, there are funny stories about bad nights, but those aren't like the real ebbs because at least they come out with a, with a, a silver cloud of, ha ha ha, we still tell that story to this day. You know, we'll laugh about this someday, that kind of stuff. But then there are just moments that you just, well, for me, the lowest ebbs were just being alone for, you know, like, let's say we were in Australia and we, Australia, you'd, you'd do like a, maybe a two week tour, but you would only play four cities maybe. And you'd play some of them twice and come back around, but you'd have a lot of downtime and downtime to me really fucked with my head um, because I was really lonely and I missed my now wife. We were married in 92. So a lot of those years we were married. But we had been dig together since Buffalo Tom started. So we were extremely close. And she's my buddy. She was my best friend. And when you're on the road, you don't necessarily want to talk to the people. You don't want to be hanging out with each other all the time. But at the same time, I didn't do alone very well. I do it much better now. I, I'm, sometimes I go away for four or five days and I'm happy. But back then, I was just like, all my thoughts and all my insecurities and everything would just start to become this big echo chamber in my head. And, you know, you didn't even have the internet to sort of go onto social media and vent or, or see other friends and kind of, I think that would have been a benefit maybe, but I, I would just be walking this, these cities alone. And, you know, it made for great art sometimes. It really, but also it made for some horrible art. I mean, stuff that would never see the light of day, just like, you know, raw vein openings in a diary kind of stuff. But those were the ebbs. And then it was like, they were together and we're playing this great show at Sydney the next time. I, I use Australia as an example because I kind of remember a couple of moments just walking for like two days. And it's as far as you can get from your family and friends. That's true too. There you go. And, but also like, uh, I remember like the moment where I said, I think everybody went out without me, that kind of stuff. Like paranoia seeps in. I mean, you know, I, I struggled with uh, my own my own sort of low-level depression and anxiety like anybody else does, I suppose. But and then you're never getting everybody else's personalities and what they're going through, and you personalize it. When you're in your 20s, it's all about you. Or at least it was about me. <laughs> when the pressure is off, the way you put it was, was that you got off the road, um, how does the art change? Well, for me, I don't think the being on the road... Not the road necessarily, but the... Off the treadmill. Treadmill and also, yeah, also the, you know, when, when you're in it, when you're in that period, when you're, um, again, you didn't think you were superstars, but you know, you're in it with the labels and everything else. The pressure is substantially different than when you decide, hey, this is kind of a fun thing that we're doing. Oh, yeah. The lack of pressure. I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I th uh, let's put it this way. I think we were always uh, buffered from any kind of commercial decisions from a label standpoint like we never had the label breathing down our necks until about that last record uh which you know we had always been signed to pretty much our whole career we had mostly been signed to beggar's banquet we had signed to a dutch label early on and he still was involved with us this guy uh rick great guy but uh horrible deal but we signed to beggar's banquet and we always were licensed out to major labels in the united states and to different you know on different plans or whatever 
it wasn't until our last uh, smitten record of the 90s, uh, last record of the 90s, that we were signed directly to a U.S. major label. And mostly that was, pr- as I recall, it was mostly my really pushing that idea of like, let's see if we can really kind of make a bigger push for commercial success. Maybe, maybe being on an indie label is holding us back, which was kind of stupid thinking, but maybe, you know, understandable. I don't know if staying with Beggar's Banquet would have gave us longevity, but it being on Polydor certainly ended our career pretty, you know, it made it a a very good reason to stop because they had, they had told us before our record came out, look, there's a merger, Seagram's blah, 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 they're taking over the, you know, you can either put the record out now or you can wait and see what happens afterwards. Let's get it out now because we've heard too many horror stories of bands never, never having their record ever released, you know. We had spent so much time putting this record together and so much Sturm and Drang and we had gone through different, you know, keyboard players and we were like trying to make a different thing and just make an artistically kind of progressive record. But also I think there were commercial concerns and, and that was from us and then also from the label. But, you know, they signed us to put out the record. Nobody knew what came out. Very few people knew what came out. They they dropped us in 200 other acts or whatever it was, and they paid us to go away, which was a perfect time to go away because we got some money to go away and give us a little buffer. But uh, to answer your question, I think coming back kind of still did a few things in the early 2000s, some A-sides and B-sides. We had a hit record in England with a cover of the jam song, uh, Going Underground. I mean, literally a top 10 hit. Uh, but it was really it was really coming back on uh i think it's uh skins i think it was the first record back maybe three easy pieces skins yeah and then um by then it was like yeah we're getting back together because we want to be together and we'll figure out who's going to put this out after we were making enough money from gigs to you know have a recording budget and recording budgets were getting cheap yeah but as far as the songs themselves how does the pressure manifest or not in in songs i don't think it really ever affected us too much it, our songs because you have to when you think about songs and, and what those things uh, how they affect the art you're really thinking about primarily lyrical content and our lyrical content was all, always a pretty good mirror of where we are in our lives i think whether it was opi- opaque or direct it must have been really edifying or encouraging to you know as you said go away and then just have this massive hit and make it clear that people still want what you're putting into the world yeah but <laughs> having <laughs> but i mean it's 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 but it's such a typical thing right it's like such a it's like that what like our friends lemonheads had the the big hit with their cover of mrs robinson you, you know for a band that's like writing and putting all these records out you don't you don't nec- it's kind of a backhanded compliment to have a hit record with that's fair i didn't consider that but that's totally fair yeah no but no i mean look I, we were certainly happy but it's like i don't i didn't ever want to play that song again ever after that little tour we did on it and it was only in the uk so it didn't make us like set for life or anything it, you know i don't know if we ever saw any money from it because you didn't write the song so we didn't get publishing from it either so but it was nice to have it listen to your point, it's nice to come back and do anything and have anybody pay attention. And Buffalo Tom has a diehard, you know, really diehard core audience, sort of like Leon Russell did. People that will come out and, and, they're, and they're actually eager to hear our next record and they want to hear us do new songs and they fly to New York to see us from other countries. It's, it's very gratifying. I wonder if your decision, you know, whether subconscious or, or, or consciously to, 
sign to Polydor and, and kind of almost what seems from the outside to have been sort of like a last, a last ditch effort to let's see if we can really make this work that you, that you had already sort of seen the writing on the wall. Yeah, to some extent, that's true. Um, it was more like, you know, uh, it's, it's this idea of moving goalposts. I always use this analogy. It's like, like I said, we were just happy to headline a club in Boston. We were, we couldn't, we couldn't believe we could headline a club in London. And then, then you start doing better. And then you start seeing bands that are like you come and do even better than that. And then you're like, you start to measure yourselves against them. This is, I'm, I'm only speaking for myself because I, I think I'm the, I, I think other guy, the other guys in the band were always kind of happy to be where we were. And I was always, uh, and I'm not saying that they're not ambitious. I just think that I, to a fault, I, at least, at least I, let's say, uh, measured our, like, well, this band opened up for us and they talked about us as an influence. And that now they're selling out blah, blah, blah. And they're selling, why, why are not we selling? Is our, our is our music that much more difficult? <laughs> is it like, why aren't we having a giant hit with this? But it's like, but if you would ask us in 86 or 89, when we were kind of getting going, it's like, uh, the idea of having a quote hit would be, we'd be, we would literally laugh at you. Like, no, you know, we're just an indie rock band that are, we're playing in the basement bar. Like, but, but then the band I would go see in that bar were the Flaming Lips, you know? And they, and that was like what I aspired to be. And then the Flaming Lips became gigantic <laughs> with, a, with a sort of novelty song. And they never looked back. They're like, and, and it became genuine with like two novelty songs. It like spread like 15 years apart. Yeah. And, but then there were bands that really worked really hard. Like Wilco, they didn't have like a hit right out of the door. They were, but he was always on the road with some version of that band, always putting out records and never sort of gave it up. It's kind of a lifer. And I feel like we kind of said, maybe, maybe it was me as much as anybody else or more so. Like, ah, I can't do this anymore. Whatever it was, you know, just I'm burned out. I suspect it puts things into perspective, you know, when when he spent so long kind of attempting to exist in Leon Russell's head, the the way the way you put it I think it was in the preface, ahead of the, you know, Elton John's big boost to get him into the into the rock hall was that he was I think stuck in a ditch in the highway of life and seeing somebody like that who you know, and I know is very talented, you know, wrote uh, like an incredible musician, great studio musician, wrote some really incredible songs, great performer, but that, that somebody like him at that level of talent could have also struggled for a long period. It puts it into perspective how much of this is also timing and luck. Yeah. And, and personal choices. So a, a lot of the stuff I was just talking about with Buffalo Tom is like, I kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm examining myself and who I was at that time and the rash sometimes decisions I might make and stuff about shooting ourselves, myself in the foot, uh, saying things I probably shouldn't have said, maybe take a breath, sit back, all that kind of stuff. Self-sabotage. Yeah. And Leon was the master of not only space and time, but of self-sabotage. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that comes through with all these people you talk about, uh, that I talk to rather, about how getting him right. But it's something that's uh, both a, a tra- it's, it's, um, it's something you could think of as sort of a negative turnoff characteristic, but also like an admirable one because of his, his, his artistic 
uh, integrity. Like, well, I mean, even Bruce Hornsby talks about it in the book. He's like, <laughs> there's something that he wants Leon to correct. He says, well, no, sir, I think that would besmirch the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, my artistic, the artistic integrity of that, of uh, take, uh, on a Picasso level. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Bruce says it with a real laugh. And, but I think, uh, that's just a small indication. But really, Leon wanted nothing to do with the music business aside from anything that was outside of his control 100%. He wanted nothing to do with. And that extends all the way to like bookkeepers and, and, uh, touring agents and like to his detriment. Like he, he, for example, he would have been better off if he got a professional bookkeeper that didn't embezzle from him or, he would have been and, and didn't get – maybe he should have taken checks and not just cash. And maybe he should have paid his taxes. On the, and maybe he should have gotten a booking agent that was just not his – dedicated just to him. Maybe he should have gotten one that with a good portfolio of artists where that he could leverage those artists to get Leon on some good bills and things like that. Leon was always like he, – he just sort of – I think he felt like he was a know-it-all or he I think he thought he knew it all or knew enough where he wasn't going to do certain things. To the point that this extends even beyond the Elton John thing, where Elton was not like – Elton and his manager, Johnny Barbas, were not like just going to check this off on a to-do list of like m- making himself feel better, a repayment of a debt. He was like – he was really dedicated, Elton was, of overseeing Leon's career henceforth. Like, we're going to now hook you up instead of uh, with T-Bone Burnett. Now we're going to maybe look at Don Was, and we're going to do this kind of record. And Leon's like, no, no, thank you guys. Thanks for getting me here, but I'm, uh, I'm going back. <laughs> to what I was doing before. And he was just going back to his comfort level to some extent. Is this a book that you could have written if he was still around? That's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it wouldn't be in this in this form. First of all, if he was still around and participated, I would have certainly more insight and it would be a different book. And if he was around and wouldn't participate, then that raises obviously a bunch of other controversial questions. First of all, his wife wouldn't have been cooperating with me, I presumably, and his kids, and I might not have had access to documents. So, I mean, this is sort of a question that's in my mind now for my next project, whichever that might be, about like, well, what kind of project do you take around, take on, and do you need access and cooperation from certain people? And, you know, there's these schools of thought, like, you know, I, I think we all understand that a memoir is going to be very different than, a, than an unauthorized biography, but I think the best kind of biographies might be I'm not saying mine is the best kind of biography, but I'm saying that the, the best of both worlds might be like Warren Zane's doing Petty, where you've got Petty alive, and he also sort of gives his blessing to just sort of do your book, Warren. But, I, you know, I think he just asked for a, a look at it before it goes to press, just so he knows. He wasn't going to even ask for an edit, I, I think. And that's that's kind of the best, but the best, where you get the cooperation, you get access to the people. They're not shutting you off from certain people. But you're also left to do your own your own book. 